Welcome to the Property Voice Podcast, helping you to navigate safely through the world of property investing. Get the lowdown and updates, insights and outcomes on all matters property with a splash of entertainment along the way. The Property Voice, a voice to trust among the crowd. Now, let's get started with your host, Richard Brown. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Property Voice podcast. My name is Richard Brown and as always, it's a pleasure to have you join me again on the show today. Now last time out, we started to discuss the four stages of the investment property life cycle, at least in overview form. And they were acquire, finance, undertake works and exit, as we outlined last time as well. Now today we start to drill down into the acquire stage a little bit more. And as property investors, there's a number of ways in which we can acquire property investments, be that on or off market, directly or indirectly. Indeed, one of the methods of acquiring property is by using deal sources. And that was part of the focus of a conversation I had with today's guest on the show, Mark Lloyd, who is an active property investor, but also a businessman and property educator. Now let's start off by listening to that conversation with Mark now in Property Chatter and we can pick up the thread again shortly. Okay, so let's get on with this week's featured topic with Property Chatter. Well, hello there. I've got uh, Mark Mark Lloyd on the phone with me, who um, is the co-founder of Property Mastery Academy, but also an active investor and entrepreneur as well. Hi, Mark. How are you doing? Yeah, hi. Very well, thanks. Great. Well, thanks very much for joining me on the show. And uh, uh, we, we had a couple of uh, starts in getting it organized all down to me. So I really appreciate your flexibility in coming on the show today. I, I guess what would be really helpful is if you wouldn't mind setting the scene a little bit and just telling the listeners a little bit about you and your background so that we can just have a little bit of context about uh, this this part of the show is uh, with you as a subject matter expert. Would that be okay? Yeah, sure. No problem, Richard. So um, I've been in business now for about 30 years. Uh, I have a long-term business partner, Jackie. Um, many of uh, many people who see us together often think we're husband and wife, but we're not. Uh, we have our own partners. And we started in property uh, around about 2009, uh, certainly as far as the UK is concerned. We had an overseas property prior to that, but um, in terms of Looking at property as a as a as a business and investment, um, about two thousand and nine, and we've just sold our previous company, which was a telecommunications company. And a lot of people ask me, um, you know, were we involved in property before? Well, the answer to that was no. That was essentially when we started property two thousand and nine, and we paid quite a lot of money for education. It was a new business for us. Decided we needed to get educated, start to find out more about the industry, what we were going to do as far as an investment vehicle and um, did uh, a number of training courses with a particular uh, well-known um, UK organization and within a short space of time we were invited onto their mentorship team um, because we bought a, quite a number of properties very quickly. I should add, although we did have a, a bit of a, a head start because we had some money from selling our company, uh, that money soon disappeared. So uh, we had to find money, uh, find ways of doing deals and one of the things that happened because we were so active and, and very, very, very active in the market, bought, bought 20 properties in a very short space of time, um, we started to find lots and lots of deals that we couldn't actually uh, take on ourselves. So um, 
one of the very first sub-businesses that people actually set up within property was a, was a sourcing business. Um, and then the education one came uh, came shortly after that. So that's really sort of a, a potted history, if you like, um, of where we're at now. We have the training company, Property Mastery Academy, uh, where we run a number of training programs, mentorship, mentorship programs as well. Excellent. Well, I think that sets the scene pretty well. So, you know, obviously the general business, um, long-term long business interest indeed, before moving full-time full into property, but, well, I assume full-time into property, but um, picking up property around about 2009 by the sound of it, which is a similar time to me, in fact, um, in earnest, that is. So uh, thanks a lot. Um, I guess we, just to set the context, we're in the middle of talking about um, the uh, investment property life cycle. And I've broken it down into four stages, which would be acquire, finance, undertake works, and exit. And so I've asked you, Mark, as you kindly come on, to talk about the acquire phase. And it's interesting you talk about sourcing because that's that's pretty much part of uh, of the acquire phase, whether we source ourselves or whether we use a third party. So uh, thank you very much. I, I guess so to pick up the threads of that, what would be the main methods in your eyes that an investor could use to acquire property deals then? I think the thing is with acquiring deals, it's not to just necessarily focus on one main area. Um, I, I don't think you can ignore estate agents. They, they control 90% of property sales um, in, in, in the UK market, and it was one of the very first areas that we focused on when we when we started. But after that, you start to get a little bit more experienced, and you want to make a little bit more money, I guess, as well, because generally deals through estate agents, you won't make as much as, say, for example, if you go directly to the vendor. Mm -hmm. um, but there are a number of other sub areas where you can find uh, find or acquire deals. Um, so I've already mentioned estate agents, there's letting agents, there's auctions, administrators. A lot of people miss administrators, possibly due to lack of knowledge, um, uncomfortable to, um, dealing in that particular area. But it's an, an area not to be missed. And also, of course, deal sources themselves. There are a number of um, people who operate as deal sources in the UK. Um, but be a little bit careful who you deal with, which we'll probably come on to shortly, I'm sure. But you know, that, that's, that can be a prime area if you don't have an awful lot of time to find uh, deals, because the other areas, you've got to put in the time at the end of the day. It's a business, and you need to put in time to, to make it a success. Yeah, I think that's one of the key components. If, you do, you know, if you're sourcing yourself, then you've got to f put some time and uh, relationship building to some, certainly some of those, the estate agents, the letting agents, and probably the administrator, at least. The, the administrator we're talking about here is, the, is like a financial administrator, somebody who's uh, managing either on behalf of a lender, on behalf of an individual company, maybe financially distressed, that type of thing, would you say? Yeah, that's right. It, it, it could well be where, say, a property, um, an estate, um, so there's a, there's a property there that someone's administrating someone's estate, or it could be that someone's gone bankrupt, so they're administrating uh, the, the, the bankruptcy side of things. There's a number of different types of administrators. Okay, that's, uh, that's a good tip. So, and talking of tips, um, I'm always keen to find out any best practice tips and that kind of thing. Do you have any? Do you have any yourself that you use one or two, perhaps for each of those areas, or or some golden rules, or, or you know those sort of things that you would you would work with in terms of dealing with estate agents, letting agents, or or just generically? Yeah, I, I think, and you touched on it already. Really, it, it is it's the relationship side of things. Mm. Um, and that took me quite a while when we first started, particularly with estate agents, um, to actually establish some kind of credibility. Because they, they have a, you know, a number of investors coming in the door, 
weekly, daily, whatever, and, and you've got to try and stand out somehow. Um, and you know, I had lots of discussions with estate agents trying to build those early relationships, same as with letting agents uh, and, and um, uh, administrators. And you know, it, it, I, I'd say that really the key one is the relationship side of things. Don't expect to get business overnight. And it's, it's, it's like any other business. If you treat property as a business rather than just an investment, it, the same concepts apply. You, you, if you try to sell to a, a customer first off, if, unless you've built some kind of relationship, the chances are they won't buy a few straight away. And it's the same principle here. Building relationships with estate agents, letting agents, administrators, they're not necessarily going to offer you deals straight away until they know you can do what you say you're going to do. I think that's an important point. And I think a lot of people who they say, let's say I've got a few quid, I'm going to become a property investor. They march down to the local estate agents and they're wondering, go, I'm a property investor. I've got this big bag of cash or whatever. And uh, can you throw me some juicy deals, please? Um, it, it doesn't work that way, does it? <laughs> uh, definitely not, no. One, the estate agents will keep the juiciest ones for themselves. Mm. Um, but it, it's... Yeah, it's just like, you know, they, they, they see these people happening day in, day out. What an estate agent wants in particular is someone that's going to be here for the longer term, that's going to buy multiple deals. You know, not just the one deal like your average residential buyer or your average investor for that matter, but someone's going to come through the door and going to want to buy more and more. And that's how you start to build the relationship. Yeah, so, I mean, if you're buying perhaps one deal a year, are you going to you know, really get high up the pecking order with an estate agent, for example. So no, I don't think so. No, exactly. I don't think if you're Go ahead. If you're buying one deal a year, then really you need to look at someone else to get those deals for you because they will get a far better deal, I think, in my opinion, than you could achieve on your own. That's one of the points I kind of wanted to tease out from you, in fact, because a lot of people believe that they can go in and build relationships with estate agents, but it's also recognising the reality of the situation that, unless they're going to command, you know, high, I call it deal velocity, uh, high frequency of buying deals from that agent, you know, there's going to be other people ahead of the queue. So it's perhaps working smarter to get access to good deals. Um, so I'm glad you clarified that point. That's certainly, uh, that's certainly one of the, the, the principles that I work with, at least. And indeed, kind of, yeah, likewise. likewise, yeah, leads, leads on really to, and, and personally, I've, I have and continue to use deal sources myself. Uh, for a number of reasons, one of which, for one you've just identified, um, other people perhaps have got access to deals. But, you know, just dealing with deal sources, if you like, just tell us a little bit about what is a deal source to begin with and, uh, and maybe what are the, you know, what are the merits of working with one, would you say, Mark? Sure. So, essentially, uh, a deal sourcer is um, almost the antithesis of an estate agent. The estate agent acts for the seller. A deal sourcer is acting for you, the buyer. So their their job is to get the best deal for you, same as the estate agent's uh, job is to get the best deal for the vendor. So you might think, well, that's an odd, odd relationship there to try and build, but you can do it, and it, although it does take time. Um, I think you know deal sourcers uh, have um, this element within the market. So I'll give you an example, really, of a guy we used to deal with very early days with one agent alone, he bought 20 properties in 12 months. Now, not him himself, he, I think he bought two or three himself, the rest were all sourced out to clients on his database. Yeah. But that 
20 properties developed a very good relationship because that estate agent knew that when this saucer came through the door, he was very serious and he started to get deals offered to him before they were actually officially put on the market or on right move or whatever. So there are quite a lot of advantages dealing with deal sources. Their negotiation skills are generally going to be a little bit better than yours, maybe quite a lot better. So the deals they're going to negotiate which should be better than you could achieve yourself. Obviously, they're going to charge a fee for that service. But you'll find in most instances that I've come across, and I've seen several hundreds of deals, the deals themselves are very, very good. There are some caveats to that, which we'll probably come on to, but you know, you, you do need to seriously, as part of your whole remit of investing, look at look at deal sources, in my opinion. You know, we, we use deal sources still, even though we're still um, actively looking out for ourselves because I you know, sometimes a source will come across a deal, I think actually that's a really good one, I need to investigate that further. But I wouldn't have found out about that deal otherwise. Yeah, mate, you make a lot of good points there. I mean, I like the point you made about somebody who's uh, who's developed that active relationship with the estate agent and perhaps would have just taken maybe a couple of deals themselves and uh, if they're just investing in their own right. But because they're also finding deals on behalf of other investors, they've got more leverage with that uh, estate agent. And so um, it highlights the point quite well, I think, uh, the merits. So, yeah, absolutely. So, so there's some of the merits, and you use the word caveats uh, just now. Um, what are the potential caveats or potential pitfalls, if you like, that investors might need to look out for to keep themselves protected uh, when dealing with deal sources in particular? Well, the thing is, I think most investors, even now, do not realize that a deal sourcer needs to be registered with a number of different um, organizations. So uh, the first organization is uh, an ombudsman type service. So there's, there's a common one called the Property Ombudsman, uh, tpo.org.uk, I think it is. Um, and to be registered with the Property Ombudsman, uh, you also need to have uh, professional indemnity insurance, a minimum of £100,000, I think the, the, the latest figure is. So. So that's the first criteria. Um, you need to be registered. And the purpose of the ombudsman is if there's any kind of dispute. So what I would say there is um, when a deal sourcer at the end of the day is a salesperson, okay? And like a lot of salespeople, they can make things sound really, really attractive. So you should always carry out your own due diligence on the deals but with, and, and also the deal sourcer themselves. So apart from the TPO and the insurance, they also need to be registered with HMRC for the anti-money laundering regulations. Again, most investors don't know this, a lot of sources don't actually know this. And the last one is the data protection. So they should have all of those kind of things. And it's quite a low kind of startup business for anybody that's going to take it seriously. The people that are sourcing the odd deal here and there, you might question, why well, do they really need to have all these? Technically, yes, they should. But if it's just the odd one deal they would have done themselves but for some reason can't do, you can generally get a little bit away around it and maybe working with someone like ourselves to help do that deal. But otherwise, they should really be registered. And I, I spoke to a really experienced sourcer the other day, and, and before we deal with any sourcer, we always ask them these questions. Are you a member of the TPO? Are you registered with HMRC? What's your insurance? And do you have, are you registered with the Data Protection Registrar? And he only had two of those. So I said, we well, need to go away, you need to get the others ones before we can deal with you. you you're right. A lot of people don't know that. Um, and the, the regulation is quite clear, I think, um, if you read the, in particular, the Estate Agents Act, isn't it? Um, well, I was just going to say that that's what it comes under. You're, you are treated um, as an estate agent, essentially, because you are matching 
buyers with sellers, and that's what a estate agent does. Yeah. So you, you're really no different. It's just you're operating in the investor market solely, whereas an estate agent is primarily residential market. Yeah. Uh, just, I, I'm sure you haven't got this figure to hand, but have you got any sense of how many sources have actually got all of the requirements in terms of the formal registrations, Mark? Um, I would think probably less than 50% of those are currently marketing. Um, in, interestingly, I, I was speaking at a, a network meeting um, only six weeks ago, just talking about deals, deals that we've done recently this year ourselves, and um, I was talking to people after the after the, the, the presentation, talked to a few guys about, they were sourcing some deals, um, and I, I said, well, are, are you registered? And he said, what do you mean? <laughs> well, have you got the TPO registration, the HMRC? No, didn't realize I needed them. And I think there's this common thing that, that people just come into property without doing any research and just think they can go off and do it, particularly the sourcing side. You know, it's, it's like any other business. You've got to get, you've got to check out what registrations you need to have. You know, if you're an estate agent, you've got to be registered. Deal sourcer, you've got to be registered. There's no distinction. I'm, I'm wondering if there's any um, implications or, or rather consequences uh, for deal sources who are acting without these formal registrations. Or is it more of a let the buyer beware type of scenario? I think it's more buyer beware, yes, but yes, there are consequences. There can potentially be consequences, and that's why you know, if you're registered, you've got to have the insurance as part of that registration. You cannot register with the property ombudsman unless you've got the insurance. And really what's designed to cover is it's designed to protect uh, both the buyer and the seller. Mm. So if you as a buyer are buying a, a deal that we've sourced, and we've provided you with false information, which you've decided not to check out, and that's fine. Nobody says you have to. I mean, you should check out the information we've given you. But if you've not done that, and you've relied on the information that we've given you, which turns out to be 100% false, you could potentially sue us. Now, we have insurance cover to help protect us in case of that kind of scenario arising. If you don't have that kind of insurance, well, you, you, you're open to all sorts of claims, and if you've got property, you could potentially lose a number of different things. So it's worth getting registered. Yeah. I, th I, was, um, I remember this point coming up a bit, and so I'm glad you clarified that as uh, somebody who has, I, I imagine, all of those uh, protections in place. So thank you, Mark. Um, moving into the sort of the more the deal side of it specifically, um, we've been talking a lot about cycles over the course of this particular series. Um, I don't know if you've tuned into any other aspects, but obviously we're now we're talking about an individual property here, but we've been talking about property cycles and our own, in, indeed, our portfolio as well over the course of this series. But in terms of specific types of deal, I'm wondering, um, obviously, with your experience and, and your position in the market, are there diff certain types of deal that would suit certain points in the market cycle or indeed some that just are not very well suited? Um, you know, for example, we hear a lot about discounted or below market value property, uh, people doing trading, people lease options, those sorts of things is what I'm driving at. Um, yeah, it's very, very interesting because I get asked this quite a lot, actually, and I think a lot of the press is geared around people living in and around London, and a lot of the, certainly the property press, because you're reading about substantial increases in price, house prices, substantial increases in the rental, um, rents being charged, applies primarily to these uh, London and the southeast of the country. 
Um, and there are certain types of deals that work really, really well there, certainly over the past 12, 18 months, two years. You know, flipping has been quite a good part in, in that particular market. But you, what you really need to do look at is, is really the microeconomics, not the, the macro UK as a whole. You look at the microeconomics and you start to look at other areas, such as, for example, let's say Liverpool, uh, not in the northwest, you can get below market value deals. You can do lease options. Um, you can do those in a number of areas of the country where the, the growth that's been experienced in certainly the London southeast over the past two years has not reflected throughout the country as a whole. So there are different types of, of deals that can be put together depending on the microeconomics of that particular uh, mark, property market. There are some areas of the northeast which have experienced quite good growth as well. Um, but there's also pockets where you can still get very, very good deals. Uh, and so it's, you know, I, I think it's having a knowledge of all the types of deals or the structures that can be put together um, and then adapting that to the market that you're actually in. I think you make a good point. I mean, there's been a lot of discussion. In fact, we had the discussion on the podcast about market cycles. And, you know, you're right that the, the epicenter, if you like, is London. Um, but then there are waves or you know, ripples or waves that go out from London. And so uh, I think the whole UK market might go through broadly the same overall cycle, but not at the same rate or pace. And so you might find, as you say, regions or the, the microeconomics of certain aspects, certain areas might lend themselves to different strategies at different points and, you know, in, in time, even though we're following broadly the same cycle. So, yeah, definitely. And uh, you know, from what I've seen, you know, L London, as you say, is the epicenter. It's then the the, the, uh, the Shire counties around London, the M25, southeast, but not a whole of the southeast. Because if you go to the, the far southeast corner, for example, places like Dover, that's quite a depressed area still. Yeah. Sweep round along to the southwest, you'll find lots of parts pockets of the southwest are doing really, really well now. Pushing up to Bristol, Bristol's been a very buoyant market over the past couple of years, I think second only to London, but then you go into Wales and it's a totally different story again. You start to move around up towards the Midlands, Birmingham, large tracts of Birmingham still not caught up with the prices in 2009. So that gives you an indication of where some of the rest of the country has still not caught up. But broadly, if we are following that, that overall wave, that overall cycle, we pro you probably agree we're, we're recovering, obviously, from the crash around about 2008, 2009. Um, you know, broadly speaking, we're on the upward swing. We're going to probably peak at yeah. some point in the future, and then it'll probably be another way, another bang down. But I guess towards the the, um, the the top and bottom of those scales, there'll be certain pro you know certain opportunities, let's say, which are either ruled in or ruled out. Um, I'm thinking people might have been in heavy ne negative equity in around about 2009, 2010, for example, and um, that might give rise to certain types of opportunity, whereas in 2006, 2007, it might have been different. What would you say? Uh, yeah, no, I, I agree entirely. And, you know, the 2006, 2007 scenario is really where um, London is, I think, now, where, where you know, the market's grown quite well. There's certainly many opportunities there for trading and, and uh, flips. Um, you've got some other areas of the country which still are experiencing negative equity, so there's very good opportunities for lease options. Um, there are also um, areas there where you're very good for below market value deals as well. So it's understanding all those um, little aspects and the different strategies which as a deal sourcer and an experienced deal sourcer need, should really understand all of those. 
um, because that's really what a deal sourcer is offering to uh, a potential buyer is it's being able to cut a deal out of something that might not have necessarily been possible initially. So it's understanding all the different strategies and ways of structuring deals. And that's one of the things that you know we do, certainly one of the presentations I do at network meetings at the moment was, was, is around structuring deals. How, how do we put this deal together to, to not only get a, get, get a good deal in, in the sense of you know, we're going we're to get a good return on it, but also how do we make a structure in such a way that we can get other investors potentially involved well, JVs and so on. So there's, there's many different ways that a deal sourcer can help put deals together, and it's having that basic understanding of all of the strategies that, that, that helps. Yeah, I'd agree with you. I think you know the one of the things that uh, people would have been aware of certainly in the lead up to the uh, to the last housing crash would have been things like programs like ha you know homes under the hammer, that type of thing, where people would buy an auction, probably do a, almost as either a full DIY or a semi DIY improvement add about 10 grand, forgot to put in their time, and then think they've made a profit. <laughs> uh, it, it's, it's not necessarily as simple as that, is it? And I wonder if people are still chasing that type of opportunity now and whether it's still relevant. Well, I, I think they still are. And, you know, Homes Under the Hammer is an extremely popular program. I, I, I always find it quite amusing um, that the, uh, the figures, the, the alleged profit that they've actually made, uh, as you say, without taking into account the, the other aspects. But well, things like Homes Under the Hammer, things like the, the uh, orientation of the press on the London and Southeast market brings more people into the market because they're they're driven, you know, let's face it, by greed at the end of the day um, to try and make some, some money. And they see it sounds so simple on the home under the hammer: you go to an auction, get a good deal on the property, spend a few thousand pounds, and whoopee, you've made twenty grand. Um, <laughs> reality is, it doesn't quite work that way, um, and that's where you know why a lot of uh, novice landlords don't actually make any money and get their fingers burnt by trying to do understand a market that they really don't understand. Going back to my previous point about it's a business at the end of the day, if you're coming in, treat it as part-time, that's fine, but get to understand it, get, get educated first is my suggestion uh, and that a lot of other people within the market would say exactly the same thing, get to understand things first, learn from somebody that's already done it. Well, yeah, we certainly got uh, a support in that line of thinking from me. <laughs> spinning, spinning the story uh, or the, the conversation, if you like, a little bit, um, I guess just going back to some of the earlier uh, comments about deal sources, um, obviously a deal sourcer would generate a fee uh, for finding an opportunity and passing it through to an investor, subject to what you're saying about having the right registrations, etc. But So therefore, it, it can be an income stream for people, whether that's uh, just as a is a part-time or full-time income stream in its own right, or potentially to sit alongside, you know, other property investment types of strategies. Um, what are your thoughts on this as people potentially looking at becoming deal sources and, and tapping into that uh, potential income stream? I think the first thing they need to bear in mind is it's an active income stream, and, and what I mean by that is if you don't do something, then you don't earn. It's not the same as buying a property refurbishing it, putting a tenant in there, and the tenant then paying a rental income, uh, which poten potentially, I say, is passive. Uh, deal sourcing is very much an active activity. So, but there are, you know, if you set up deal sourcing, uh, or become a deal sourcer, and, and treat it as a, again, I keep re-emphasizing this, as a proper business, there are, in my mind, potentially four income streams you can generate out of deal sourcing. Uh, there is 
something that we call discovery days or investor days where we would invite uh, investors along. They pay a fee to come along, by the way. So if, if we invite someone into an area that we we um, have people operating in, you will pay to glean the knowledge from that person for that day. And they, they will take you around the area, explaining the ins and outs of the, the, the particular town or city, what the good areas to buy in, what, what where, you, where you'd get certain types of tenants, where's, where the flips are, where the HMOs are located. And they'll even take you around through to some estate agents, show you some of the, the, the estate agents they're working with. They'll take you around some properties that they're dealing with where there's potential refurbishments happening at the same time. So you've got the discovery day. You've got the, the deal findings, the deal sourcing fee. You've also potentially got, if you decide to offer the full kind of service, and this is what we do um, within our sourcing uh, business, is that we try and offer a full service. So we try and offer the, the discovery days in those areas where we can. There's obviously the finding of the deal. We will organize the refurbishment. We have teams in place in most areas of the country to carry out refurbishments for investors because the idea is to try and offer an armchair kind of service to an investor that's looking to buy the deal. So we will organize the refurbishment from our, uh, what we call our power team, our builders, electricians, plumbers, carpenters, etc. Uh, and we will charge a fee for managing that for you. The final element of the, of the key, which is something we don't do, um, is the letting agency side. But we put you in touch with letting agents that we deal with in those areas. Um, so the potential is a deal sourcer. There are four income streams if you really want to treat it as a full-blown business. Yeah, you would be actually having a, a significant business, wouldn't you, if you tackled all four of those? I mean, the, the earlier part, Absolutely. you've got a, a sort of uh, different aspects, let's say, to those different business uh, streams. The project management would be different to the uh, discovery day, for example. And indeed, a letting agency. There'll be a whole, you know, there's the rules and compliance around that as well. So um, there it are. Is. And I know. think the thing is that that what you're what you're trying to offer is a service to the investor. So if you can plug in a lot of those gaps, you've got a far better chance of selling your service than just by selling a deal. And not not all not all investors are going to take advantage of the other the other elements. But the fact that you've got them there does help you broaden your market because if you can offer um, the refurbishment side and help with the letting side, you will attract more armchair type investors than if you're just selling the deal where you're more likely to get more experienced investors um, and they'll only take certain types of deals. Yeah, so you, you, it's, it's classic sort of market coverage, isn't it, in that sense? Uh, yeah. Again, from the business point of view. And if, I guess if we flip it around from the investor point of view, there's, uh, there's a kind of a pick-and-mix type approach uh, invest, a different type of investors could, could adopt. Um, you know, if they're sourcing an opportunity but want to do their own refurbishment, I guess they could do that. Um, but equally, they could take that service from someone such as you if they either didn't have access to those teams in the area or didn't want to get involved for some reason. Uh, yeah, definitely, and that's exactly what we've done. You know, we we bought deals from sources, and we've done all the rest of it ourselves. And so, uh, and there's a lot of value in that, I think, from the investor point of view. And people shy away from paying for that. So, um, you know, I, I'm a little bit neutral in this sense. I'm I'm an investor who hasn't got an axe to grind so far as sourcing the deals, but I do see the benefit and the merit of uh, dealing with a professional sourcer who, and project management team who can undertake those sorts of uh, activities for me, save me time save me uh, loss of money for, for getting things right. So there is a value, definitely. Um, and, and therefore, I think, you know, providing that it's a reasonable exchange, 
um, is a fair thing for an investor to consider doing and paying for. But uh, yes, and you know, as long as they're getting the return on their investment, that they're, that they're, the level they're happy with, then yeah, I think it's a good alternative. Yeah, that was something I was going to say. I think it's all a case of doing the numbers and factoring in those costs from an investment point of view. Um, the the other thing I just wanted to pick up on, obviously from your role as an educator, and also you mentioned that you, you can support in the sourcing side of it, how how can you support people? What are the things that you can you can suggest people do or you can offer yourself, if you like, in, in terms of um, education and or sourcing in terms of property? Uh, well, in terms of sourcing, I deal, deal with the aspects first. First, that's quite quite straightforward. Um, quite simply, we have a database of investors. If if someone wants to join uh, onto our mailing list, then then we're happy to to, to add people onto that. Uh, as far as the education side of things uh, is concerned, uh, we did used to run a deal sourcing and uh, packaging course um, up until about six months ago, and then we incorporated it within some of the other things that we were doing. So. Primarily within our within our mentorship program, uh, where we now will cover deal sourcing not only as a, uh, a separate business but as an activity for teaching investors on on how to go about finding their own deals, and that's what we want to do. So it's, it's more incorporated within that side of things now, um, which you know we're uh, we're about to start another mentorship program uh, in January. So um, that's something we'll be incorporating within that. Excellent. Okay. And um, I normally like to ask our guests in, in, in case they have something that maybe they'd like to share with the listeners of the Property Voice. Um, I don't know if you if you have anything in mind, Mark, that perhaps listeners could uh, gain access to from, from you? Uh, yes, yeah, certainly. I, I think um, we have a, a property investment blueprint, which is available as a soft copy. Um, and it's, it really just goes through some basic elements of uh, property investing. So if, if you are Starting out, for example, some, some things you need to consider. Give, is there some questions, some elements there for you to actually fill in as you go along to help you think? And it shows you really the journey Jackie and I took when we started, and some of the concepts that we adopted um, to follow the strategies that we have done. So um, that, that that we can give away. That's free of charge. Um, I'm happy to provide a link for uh, for people to uh, to uh, get that. Great. Well, if you can if you can let me have the link, I'll certainly include it in our show notes for, for the podcast. But um, I guess it brings us on quite nicely to how, how could people get in touch with you if, uh, if they wanted to, Mark? Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, well, obviously, there's always always the telephone. Uh, so <laughs> I, I could be reached on the, on the telephone, which is 01252730045. That's my direct number. Alternatively, uh, email uh, mark at propertymasteryacademy.co.uk, which is training side or mark at lloydreeves.co.uk which is the sourcing side. Great and I'll put all those uh, all those links in the show notes as well or indeed if anybody wants to to, to get in touch they can just ping me an email podcast at thepropertyvoice.net and I'll pass on the contact details accordingly so I, I guess um, they're the sort of main questions I wanted to pitch to you. I, I, I don't know, I might throw a curveball at you now, but is there anything you think I should have asked you or you, you're burning to tell me as a result of our conversation that I may have missed? I, I don't think so. I, I think I just you know, re-emphasize, check out the person you're dealing with. Um, you know, deal sources are, I can use this term politely, just salespeople. They're there to sell a product or a service. Uh, so check them out. You know, you're not going to just walk into a... Um, 
somewhere today that you've not been to before and just suddenly buy something unless you know exactly what you want. So, you know, check those people out. If they've got, if they've done deals before, ask if they've got any ref um, references. You know, because the air industry unfortunately does attract um, sometimes undesirable people, and you need to be protected. And that's part of the legislation is therefore you need to also take some responsibility yourself. I think that's a very fitting way to end the conversation. Actually, due diligence is always one of the things I'm talking about uh, quite extensively as far as and dealing with anybody in property. So uh, not least of which deal sources, because there's money to be made and uh, there's risk <laughs> risk to be had as well. So very wise words. Um, I just want to say thanks very much, Mark. Really appreciate you coming on the show and sharing your your wisdom and your experience. And um, I probably need to be getting a copy of the property investment blueprint myself, actually. So <laughs> so welcome. Well, I might be I might be one of those people in the queue, but um, if anybody wants to get hold of a copy, uh, by all means, reach out to Mark directly or through us, and we'll pass on the contact details. But again, Mark, I just want to say thanks very much um, uh, for joining us on the show today and sharing your knowledge. It's always appreciated. Pleasure, Richard. Thanks a lot. Bye bye. I think the conversation with Mark highlighted and indeed reinforced many of the principles that I've shared over, over many weeks of the Property Voice podcast now. For example, he talked about property investing being a business activity, the need to educate and inform ourselves, and of course that we should always take steps to check out the people and organisations that we intend to do work with, or due diligence to give it the umbrella term. And I'm sure many of those principles you would have heard me talk about over the last uh, weeks and months of the Property Voice podcast. But I'm very pleased that Mark made these points. I'm also pleased that he explained that deal sources are subject to regulation under the Estate Agency Act 1979. Deal sourcing, after all, is a form of estate agency, you see. And the Estate Agency Act points out that people who represent sellers and indeed buyers need to follow certain compliance methods. The most notable one is to be a member of a recognised ombudsman service such as the TPO or the property ombudsman. Now I like the simple checklist that Mark outlined in the interview to be able to validate a deal source's credentials. For example, are they mem a member of a recognised ombudsman scheme? It's not an easy word to say, is it? <laughs> the property ombudsman is the biggest, but it's not the only one, by the way. Do they have suitable professional indemnity insurance in place? Are they registered with HMRC with regard to anti-money laundering regulation? And are they registered with the Information Commissioner for data protection purposes? I asked Mark and he estimated something at least 50% of active deal sources do not have all of these provisions in place. So do undertake your checks. However, he did also suggest that a casual deal sourcer, such as an investor passing over the odd deal to an, another investor, may not feel the need to go to such lengths as this for what might be the odd opportunity here and there. We will have to make a judgment call should we encounter such an individual, however, I would strongly suggest. Uh, and indeed, we may want to take, uh, in fact, I would highly recommend we undertake our own full due diligence, both on the property investment and indeed any third party who's bringing us the deal as well. But returning to the general theme of acquiring property, let us recap on the main methods or routes of acquiring investment property. And these are principally estate agents, auctions, letting agents, using administrators of various descriptions, 
direct to vendor and indeed deal sources. Now these methods of acquiring investment property along with the alternative methods or structures of property acquisition will be picked up again later. Right now though let's leave the discussion here for now and we shall pick it up in a little bit more detail next time out. Up next is your voice. It's all about you and your property world. Now I'm going to do something a little bit different for you this week in the Your Voice. One of our regular listeners and indeed a rich source of ideas and themes to cover in the show is someone called Sanjay who you may have heard me name check in the past. Now Sanjay has been following my book reading challenge which I've been undertaking during the course of 2015 and I've now read something of the order of 40 books this year and so he asked me to list my favourite book along with the reasons for suggesting it. I think I actually said books and the reasons for suggesting them. Now I plan to do exactly that in a short end of year episode next time out. However, it'd be great to get a few listener suggestions and contributions to share as well. So why don't you drop me an email with the best book you've read this year and why you would nominate it. That way we can all get some good book recommendations for 2016, can't we? Mail me podcast at thepropertyvoice.net with your top, top book of 2015 and why you think so and I'll share the best ones in the show and as an added incentive I will send the best three a copy of my own book Property Investor Toolkit as well with my compliments. So get those book recommendations coming in and we'll uh, hopefully have a few from different sources to share with you next time out. And now, where you can go for more great resources with the shout-out. Now, today's shout-out goes to a communication app which is called Basecamp. And if you regularly need to communicate with, let's say, uh, a couple or a team of people, then Basecamp could be a good solution for you. Personally, I found that I was using a combination of WhatsApp, email, Facebook Messenger, and probably a few more communication tools besides for some internal communications with my business colleagues. Then we found Basecamp, which allows all written communications to be held in one central place and indeed managed across platforms due to it having both a desktop and a smartphone application in interface. It's still very much in the early days for us, but already we've found it a lot easier to manage and search for those annoying bits and pieces of notes that we may have sent to one another using a variety of different, uh, variety of different communication methods beforehand. So it's certainly starting to make our life easier. So give Basecamp a try. There we go then. It's um, just a short uh, top and tail really to the interview with, uh, with Mark Lloyd. But uh, another episode of the Property Voice podcast draws to a close, as does indeed the end of the year. I'd like to wish you a, a very happy festive period, regardless of any religious persuasion. Let there be peace, tolerance and harmony to all. I shall have a short episode on the Wednesday before New Year, just in case you're missing your property, <laughs> your regular property fix, or you just need a, a break from all that festive fun. So join me then for a short and sweet end of year special edition of the Property Voice podcast. Now, don't forget to drop me an email personally with your best book of the year recommendation, podcast at thepropertyvoice.net. And meanwhile, all the show notes, as ever, will be over at the website, thepropertyvoice.net. Thank you very much for listening once again. And until next time on the Property Voice podcast, it's ciao, ciao. Thank you for listening today. Now head over to thepropertyvoice.net for more inspirational content and get updates through our mailing list. Join us next time on the Property Voice podcast. And if you enjoyed the show, please don't forget to rate us on iTunes.